Thank you, Pastor Jason, singers, musicians. That's beautiful singing this morning. Wow. That got heavenly, didn't it? Amen. You can see on the screen this morning I'm preaching a sermon I've entitled Seven Sayings from the Cross. I have quoted these seven sayings that Jesus said from the cross over the years, but I've never preached on the subject and looked at those seven sayings until today. It's almost as though it is, it is such a holy place. It is such a sacred thing that it's difficult to approach. But this morning I want us to look at those seven sayings from the cross. Let's uh, look in chapter 23, as you see on your screen there, and look at verse 33. And then when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and one on the left. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together and the beautiful singing and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now speak to us through your word. Lord Jesus, we approach these seven sayings with, with great care. Speak to us through them. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. In 2012, Karen and I went to the Holy Land. And one of the high points for me was a place called Gordon's uh, Calvary. Now the word Calvary that we just read in our text, the word Calvary uh, means, it's a Latin word, it means skull. The Greek word is uh, cranion. It's where we get our word cr uh, cranium, the skull. And, uh, and then, you know, Golgotha was used for the place of the crucifixion as well, and, the, and that's an Aramaic word. It means the place of the skull. There is a place in the Holy Land that's called uh, the Hill of the Skull. Look, give me my screen back, please. And... Uh, we saw it. This was a man explaining things. Sometimes it's called Gordon's Calvary because there was a, a general in the British Army, uh, general, um, and, and he promoted this. He went down in 1883, saw this place, and he believed in his heart this was the place where Jesus was crucified. He's a decorated general, and, uh, and this was, uh, he promoted it, and so it, his name, Gordon, uh, stayed with it. And uh, he's showing us a picture here, and this is the picture. You can kind of see the skull in the rock. And then this is the picture that, uh, that I took. You can't really see it unless you look closely, but I'm going to circle it for you. See if you see it there. It's right there. There's the, there's the face or the skull in the rock. You see it here, here, close to Gordon's uh, 
Calvary, there is the, uh, the garden tomb. The garden tomb looks like this. This is a picture that I took as well. There are other sites. There's another place which uh, Catholics believe is the place of the crucifixion and the place of the resurrection. But there's a church built over the top of it. Back in the uh, uh, 4th century, 5th century, and 6th century, they built churches over the top of, of uh, what they believed to be special places. This, uh, this was discovered in the 1800s, this tomb and Gordon's uh, Calvary. Another picture or two of the empty tomb. Possibly the tomb that Jesus resurrected from and walked out of. We don't know the exact place. I showed the pictures for this reason. There was an exact place. This happened in history. This happened in time. This was a reality. And there was a real tomb. And there was a real place called Calvary. Maybe this place, I don't know. The place of the skull. Where Jesus died for our sins. Now before we look at the seven saints, I want, us to, I want to kind of take the four Gospels and, and bring us to the place of Jesus on the cross. He was arrested, of course. And then he was taken to Annas. And uh, he had three religious trials. Annas, uh, Caiaphas, and then the whole Sanhedrin. And then he had three civil trials. One before Pilate, and then Pilate sent him to uh, Herod. And Herod was disappointed because Herod had wanted to see one of his miracles. He wanted Jesus to do like a magic trick. You know, he wanted him to perform a miracle for his entertainment. And, of course, Jesus did not. He sent him back to Pilate, and there was then the second trial or hearing with Pilate. Along the way, he was beaten and abused. He was beaten first by the Jewish guards. He was beaten by the Roman guards. He was beaten one time with their hands. He was beaten another time with rods or clubs. And one occasion they put a, a covering over his head and, and beat him with rods and mockingly said, if you're a prophet, prophesy and tell us who it is that is beating you. They spit in his face on several occasions. They laughed. They mocked. The Roman soldiers were particularly cruel. And in Isaiah 52, we're told his, his face was marred more than any man. His face was disfigured. The word marred there means disfigured. <clears throat> His face was disfigured so that you could barely tell he was human. It also said his body more than the sons of men. His body was disfigured as well. From the beating 
But then after all of those beatings, then came the official scourging that Pilate ordered, and they beat him with with uh, what would be the forerunner of the cat of nine tails. It may have only had five straps or seven straps or something like that. And on the end of these straps were sharpened uh, pieces of metal like, uh, like knives. And they would, whip a, they would whip a prisoner until he was at the point of death. It, it always took at least two, sometimes three, because the people whipping would get exhausted from the whipping, and somebody else would have to step in and take the whipping up. And when these prisoners were whipped, it was not unusual that the skin was so pulled away from the torso that you could look down and see your ribs, the actual bones. Jesus said in prophetic utterance in Psalm 22, My bones, they do stare at me. Jesus could see his bones. The only only depiction of the cross I've ever seen that I thought was looked real was in the passion of the Christ. If you want to see a depiction of it, the passion of the Christ is close. You can see, if you watch closely several times, you can see the ribs in, in that uh, depiction. And so he was then taken to the cross and nailed to the cross. We're told by historians that when those nails went through the wrist, sometimes they would hit nerves and cause spasms in the body, convulsions. They nailed him to the cross and they stood that cross up and it fell into a hole in the ground maybe four feet deep. And when it did, often it pulled the bones out of joint in the shoulders because they're hanging by your hands and when it hit so hard it would jar and pull the the shoulder bones out of joint. Again, Jesus said in Psalm 22, my bones are out of joint. He said they pierced Again, Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. My bones do stare at me and my bones are out of joint. It was in this great agony, in this great pain, that Jesus spoke these seven sayings from the cross. Look at the first one. If you look back at your screen. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Go back to your text. You've got your Bibles open. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to move around some. Again, verse 33 says, They took him to the place called Calvary, and there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and one on the left, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots for his clothing. It says, then said Jesus. It appears that when this crucifixion was beginning, and by the way, all historians would say crucifixion is the most torturous, terrible execution man has ever devised. And when 
So apparently when they stood this cross up and it fell into the hole and Jesus had been beaten and his face was disfigured and the crown of thorns was shoved down on his head, six inch thorns entering the skin around his head. And when they stood him up and his bones came out of joint and usually the prisoners would scream in agony. And though Jesus' agony was real, Jesus, when they stood him up, said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. Jesus had taught that we were to love our enemies. That we were to do good to those who use us despitefully. The New Testament had taught that that we were to forgive those who have wronged us. Even if they had treated us Terribly, Here Jesus is asking forgiveness for the ones who nailed his hands and his feet and beat him. And while they were beating with him and his life's blood was running out, they were laughing and mocking and spitting on him. And yet he prayed for those who abused him. You and I will never suffer like that. Or never be wronged by anyone this badly. But he intends for us to forgive those and to pray for those who have wronged us. Three years later, you may remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was was being stoned for preaching the resurrection of Christ. And the Jewish people were, uh, were stoning him. And as they stoned him, he cried, Lord Jesus, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And, and then as he was drawing his last breath, he said, uh, Father, uh, or Lord, do not hold this against them. The ones that were stoning him, throwing the stones and laughing and and, and they were in such a, such a angry rage. Who's wronged you? Who is it that wronged you and caused bitterness and anger? Maybe you've been wronged mistreated, even abused physically or sexually. Karen and I have counseled with a lot of people over the years that have been abused sexually, maybe when they were children. It seems unfair. It really does seem unfair to me to ask them to forgive the people who have wronged them. It just is not fair. But nevertheless, the Scripture tells us we're to forgive even those who have abused us. It's not for their good, it's for our own good. To weed out the bitterness and the anger and that resentment that steals away our joy and our peace in life. I remember one time I was preaching on Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, I was talking about in that passage where it says we're to forgive those who have wronged us just as the Lord Jesus has forgiven us. And so 
I preached on forgiveness. Somewhere in there I said something like this. Just because you forgive someone doesn't mean you're saying what they did was not bad. No, what they did may have been the worst thing in the world. God will judge that. What you're saying is you're not going to be bitter any longer. You're not going to hold grudges. You're not going to let what happened to you in the past control you in the here and now. A man that I've known for many years met me in the hallway. And he said, Pastor, I've, I've needed to forgive someone for a long time. But I was unable to do it. Because I felt like it would be saying what they did wasn't so bad. He said, I think by God's grace I can forgive now. You say, Pastor, you don't... You don't know how bad it was. You don't know how wronged I was. No, I don't, but the Lord knows. And here's the thing. The one who cried from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That same one lives in you. If you're a believer, he lives in you. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We cannot do it in our own strength, but we can do it in the strength of Christ. Let him work in your heart. Bring forgiveness for the wrongs that have taken place. So the first saying from the cross is, Father, forgive them. The second saying from the cross is, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, leading up to that, we, we read verse 34. Look at verse 35. And the people uh, stood beholding, and the rulers also with them uh, derided him. The word deride means to, uh, to mock and ridicule, to make fun of, to laugh at. Uh, they ridiculed and mocked him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. When you put all four of the Gospels together, you, you see the religious leaders mocked him and laughed at him and scorned him. The Roman soldiers did so. And, and even the passerbyers, the people who are just passing by the scene of the cross, the location being outside the city on a main road, they, they uh, ridiculed him as well. They just joined in this terrible, hideous mocking. Look at verse 39. And one of the malefactors, which was hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. So one of the men on the cross joined in. Now, uh, Matthew and Mark tell us that they both ridiculed Christ at the beginning. But some time has gone by now. By the way, I should have told you this up front. Jesus hang on the cross from 9 o'clock in the morning, the third hour, counting from 6 o'clock, to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So for six hours, he hung on the cross. The first three hours, it was daylight in the middle of the day, as it normally is. And three of these sayings took place in the light. 
But at noon, it became dark, and darkness filled the land. And for three hours, there was a supernatural darkness. The last four sayings are spoken in the darkness. So we're somewhere in that first three hours now when we come to this second saying, the first three hours. Notice, uh, and... uh, uh, but the other, verse 40, But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, that is, we deserve what we're getting. We have murdered, and we, have, we are criminals. We've been found guilty. We deserve what we're getting, for we receive our due reward for our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. This man is sinless, having done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord. He called him Lord and Master. He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now this is a strange faith, if you think about it. He's hanging on the cross, but not only that... The one he's trusting in is hanging on the cross as well. And he's dying. But this man becomes convinced, probably because of the way Jesus is handling everything, he becomes convinced he is who he claimed to be. That he is sinless. That he is Lord of heaven and earth. And so he calls him Lord. And he also believes, though he is dying, he believes that he does have a kingdom. And he wants to be a part of that kingdom. And so he prays this simple prayer. And by the way, the men hanging on the cross, it was very difficult to breathe because when the collarbones are broken, and even if they're not, it cuts off the air when you're hanging on your hands. And so you'd have to push up on your feet. That spike that's driven in your feet, you have to push up on that to get enough breath to speak. And you can only speak short sentences. And he says... Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus responds immediately. Look at verse 43. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The word paradise is used three times in the New Testament. This is one of those times. All three times it refers to heaven. And so he says, Today you're going to be with me in heaven. And uh, this very day, I'm, uh, you will be in that kingdom that you requested. What a beautiful picture of salvation, an illustration of salvation this is for us. Do you know that before this day is over, you can settle, you can settle your eternal destiny. You can know that you too have, have called upon Christ as Lord and Savior, and your sins have been forgiven, and you have a home in heaven. It's as simple as... Calling on the Lord and meaning it. In Romans chapter 10, we're told, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's God's promise. This person believed Jesus was who he said he was. Admitted his own guilt. And called on Jesus as Lord. So we have this beautiful illustration of salvation. You know, the Scripture says Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He was still looking for 
poor lost sinners and saving them while he hung on the cross. There is a third saying, while still in the light. Look, at, look back at my screen with me. He says, woman, behold thy son. Behold thy mother. Now turn to John 19. You, I'm turning there, so you have time to turn and find it too. We're going to be there for a while, so go ahead and turn over there. John 19. And verse 26. Again, no gospel writer gives us all seven of these sayings from the cross. You have to put the, the four gospels together to find these seven sayings. And this third saying now comes uh, here in the gospel of John, chapter 19. Look at verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. She was from a place called Magdala. That's the reason for the term uh, Mag uh, Mary Magdalene. So these women were there at the cross and must have been close at the foot of the cross. Look at verse 26. And Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved. Now that's John. I don't have time to go into it, but for some reason, John, in the Gospel of John, never uses his own name. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And uh, he wasn't saying he loved him more than anybody else. He was just uh, saying that's what, uh, that's what his life was all about, was that Jesus loved him. And uh, so here he is referring to himself, the Apostle John. And, uh, and he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. John standing there. He says, Behold John now. John is going to take care of you like a son. And then notice he says in verse 27, Then saith he to the disciple, to John, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. Here we see the love of family. In the midst of this terrible agony, unspeakable pain. And his body was real. His body was human. That's, this pain was real, just like if it were you or me there. In the midst of that, he was concerned about others. He was concerned about his mother. You know, sometimes along life's path, we have to take care of mom and dad. And uh, I've seen this in our church congregation, the, the love and compassion and the care of taking care of family. That's an important truth. That's an important teaching in the New Testament. And here Jesus demonstrates that love of family. Love your family. Be good to your wife. Be good to your husband. Be good to your children. God calls us to do so. Be good to your parents. Care for one another. Love one another. And then, if you look back at your screen, we look at the next word from the cross, which is the fourth. And that is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's over in Matthew. You can turn there if you like, and we'll look at just those two verses. Hold your place in John there. We're going to come back to John in a moment. Verse 45 says, 
Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness. Sixth, sixth hour from six o'clock in the morning, that would be noon. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth. So there's three hours. And about the ninth hour, towards the end of that darkness, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sackbach thanai. Which is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Wow. It's more than a quote. You could say it's a quote from, from Psalm 22.1, but it's more than a quote. That psalm was written a thousand years before the day of Christ, and it was written prophetically. That chapter is a prophetic chapter about the crucifixion. By the way, crucif the, the means of execution we know as crucifixion did not exist when that psalm was written. And he details it with great detail because God knew it would come into existence about 500 years later. And he says, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 3 of that, of that chapter 22 says, because thou art holy. God is holy. And he cannot fellowship with sin, nor can he look upon sin. And in those dark hours on the cross, in a way beyond our full understanding, God the Father pulled out, poured out the sins of the world upon his Son. Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians says, And he who knew no sin became sin for us. Wow. He became sin. Somehow, He became sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, it says. That's grace. Wow. That's amazing grace, isn't it? That He loved us that much. Through the darkness came the sin. By the way, this was what Jesus was dreading in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, let this cup pass from me. It wasn't the physical suffering as, as real and terrible as that was. It was his fellowship being broken with the Father and him bearing our guilt and becoming sin for us. You know... Hebrews chapter 12 says, regarding us believers, He will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that you and I would never be forsaken. Thank God for the cross. And then, if you look back at your screen, there is a fifth saying, and that is, I thirst. Turn back now. If you held your place, turn back over there. If not, turn back anyway. And, uh, and look at chapter 19 of John. And and verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. 
This is the fifth saying from the cross, I thirst. What does that teach us? What does that say to us? It speaks of his humanity. You know, in that body, we're told in John chapter 4, he was tired, he was weary from the journey. When he was asleep in the boat, the fishing boat, you remember he was asleep because he was tired from the journey. That body was real. This body was a real physical body. And upon that cross, that suffering was as real as if it were you or me. And so this speaks of his humanity, the genuineness of this pain and sorrow. And uh, uh, it is, again, in Psalm 22, it says, My tongue cleaves to my jaw. He was so thirsty, his tongue was stuck to the side of his mouth. And then they brought him something. Look at verse 29. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar... And they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on a, on a hyssop, that is a stick, a stalk, and put it to his mouth. Now, Jesus is fixing to say something extremely important from the cross. His sick saying, and needed to say it loudly, wanted to say it loudly. And this little bit of vinegar to his mouth allowed him to, his tongue to come loose from his Jaw and him to be able to speak clearly. Look at it. And they put it to his mouth. Verse 30. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Luke tells us that he, he cried with a loud voice. So this, this, it is finished, was loud. He cried out, It is finished. Now his life was not finished. But he had accomplished uh, the, the price, paying the price for our redemption. It is finished. Teleo is the Greek. It was used commonly in, in secular Greek. It was used of, a, for instance, a servant who had been given something to do by his master. When he got back, if that had been fully accomplished, he would use that word teleo. Finished. Completed. It was also used if you, pay, if you owed somebody at the grocery store, you've been buying groceries and saying, put it on my tab, you know, and uh, the end of the month comes around, and the end of the month, you owe X amount of money, and you pay that money, they would write across your bill, teleo, which means paid in full. Jesus paid in full for my sin. So I, I don't have to pay for it. He paid for it. I don't have to be tortured and, and, uh, and be separated from the Father because Jesus bore my sin for me. He completed it. And so, the sixth saying from the cross, if you look back then, is it is finished. One more. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Turn back to where we started in Luke chapter 23. We will close there. Luke chapter 23. Verse 
Luke 23, 46, I'm sorry, 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, that is, when he had cried, it is finished, that he said in a loud voice. Then he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost, or he, he surrendered his spirit in death. Usually people on the cross live two, three days of long, drawn-out agony. Sometimes if there was a holiday coming up, they would break the bones of the legs, and that would hasten the death, which they did to the criminals uh, beside Jesus. But when they come to Jesus, he had already died. Jesus died at the right time and in the right place. He gave up his spirit. Remember Jesus said in John 10, uh, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I, no man taketh my life from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. Amen. He surrendered his spirit in death this very moment at 3 o'clock. You remember I told you last week that at 3 o'clock, I mean that on Sunday of Palm Sunday, when Jesus came into town riding on the donkey, that was the... That was the lamb selection day. That was the day they selected the lamb, their Passover lamb. On Friday is when they killed the Passover lamb. You know what time they killed it? Three o'clock in the afternoon. The, the person who was officially in charge of the time, he would be watching closely. And when the time came, three o'clock, right on the dot, he would make the signal. And there was another priest standing on the, on the top of the temple wall in the highest place in Jerusalem. And he had a shofar. He had a, a big uh, horn. And he would blow that horn. And when he blew the horn, people would know it's 3 o'clock. Kill the lamb. And in the temple, the Passover lamb, when he heard it, they would take the knife. He was standing ready with that knife. And as soon as he heard that shofar, he would... He would Cut the throat of the lamb. Jesus was hanging on the cross. He is the lamb of God from before the foundation of the world. All the other lambs just point towards him. And, and Jesus would have heard. You could hear it all through Jerusalem. He would have heard that shofar blow. And, and he knew the lamb was slain. And Jesus gave up his spirit. He became our Passover lamb. But he didn't stay dead, did he? <laughs> Death couldn't hold him because he was the Lord of life itself. He was the creator of life and the giver of life. King of kings. Will you let him be your king? Lord of lords, will you let him be your Lord? He's the Lord of peace. Let him give you his peace. He's the king of glory. Do you know him? You could know him. You can know him personally before you leave this building. Just like the thief on the cross. Admit your sinfulness. Call upon him as Lord and Savior. And you can come to know Jesus personally. 
S.M. Lockridge was a great preacher, preached all over the world. Pastored the same Baptist church for 40 years. His most famous sermon was entitled, That's My King. There's a three-minute clip of that that we're going to watch as we close. Let's watch that three-minute clip. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! Amen, 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 amen. That's my king. I hope he's your king. I hope you know him. He asked the probing question through that little message. Do you know him? Do you know him?
personally, truly, in the forgiveness of sin and in the great redemption through his blood.